0: You're writing a story. You have your characters, you have your plot, but what about world building? Like I promised last time, my listening several, here's an episode on domestication. Though I think we all know I'm talking about dogs when I say that. I still do want to talk about other non dog animals. I'm just going to take a quick moment to reflect on how much I love dogs. (sighs) Dogs. All right, down to business. Dogs. I mean, domestication. Domestication is a process that takes wild animals and makes them generally more amenable to working with animals outside their species, as well as more dependent on other species. It's a process that works over a long period of time and many generations, An animal that is domesticated will have significant genetic differences, generally, than its wild cousins. It's also a species-wide definition. You tame a single wolf, but you domesticate wolves and get dogs. Though, when working with wild animals, using the word tame can get iffy. But that's not my focus here today. Today, my focus is talking about what even is domestication. How it works, what animals or mythical creatures might be good candidates for domestication, And maybe another tangent, if it tickles my fancy. I'm going to use mythical creatures today because they're a baseline we all generally have a good handle on. Dragons, griffins, and unicorns are pretty ubiquitous throughout our culture. And we all got some good images there of what I was talking about when I mentioned them just now. But how many of you who aren't hardcore Mass Effect fans would remember what a Varen is? Sci-fi is a really cool and wide-open space to explore, no pun intended, but its openness does tend to leave me wanting when I'm looking for common reference points that we can all get behind. Don't worry, though. I'm getting into some of that good sci-fi content. It's on the list. But for now, we're going to talk about domesticating animals and legendary creatures. It'll be great. What could go wrong? First off, let's look at how exactly you do a domestication. According to the blog Why Animals Do The Thing, in order to be domesticated, a species has to fit the following criteria. 1. You must be able to control its reproduction and 2. That species must have multiple babies per litter or short gestational times 3. You must be able to feed it 4. Keep it contained and 5. The added requirement The species must be utilized in some way that is not emotional companionship. The last one is something to really look at for world building. We in the West have taken a shine to having all manner of pets. From canaries to cats, from hounds to horses. Heck! there are even pet chinchillas soft fluffy chinchillas so when we with our modernized look at animals our first instinct might be to simply seek out companionship this is not necessarily a bad thing in fact i'd love to see world building where companionship was actually considered a trainable task maybe by aliens who tend to be more solitary in nature than humans But looking through a historical lens, it makes sense that there are so very few pets bred purely for companionship. Up until comparatively recently, people lived in more closely-knit societies. Back when we were first starting to figure out this domestication business, even though the actual population was much lower than it is today, I imagine feeling lonely was less of an issue. Everybody knew everybody else in the group, and everybody pretty much had a purpose. Probably. In any case, looking towards animals purely for company was inefficient. If you were trying to survive, having a non-human around just to look pretty was a waste of food and other resources. That companion of yours should be able to pull its weight. And maybe the animal did just that. Goats, dogs, horses, camels, and other quadrupeds were used all over the world for pulling things, carrying things, and so on. Maybe the animal didn't literally pull weight, but helped in other manners. Dogs again helped out in acquiring food through hunting, which falcons, eagles, and other birds of prey did, and still do to this day. Or maybe, like goats, chickens, and cows, they provided sustenance. You see the pattern, yes? Try to think of a traditionally kept animal, not one of the newer pets, like ant farms or something, stuff your grandparents or great-grandparents would have known about. And Try and think of one that doesn't have at least one practical use. think of anything? It's hard, isn't it? I can kind of think of one. Fancy, fancy pretty fish like the betta fish, or the koi from Far East Asia. Though that might be a stretch for two reasons. One, I don't know very much on the social history of the betta, i.e. was there any cultural capital to be had from owning them, and two, you can eat koi if they are big enough. Oh, I almost forgot three. China, aka the Middle Kingdom, has been around for 5,000 years, and their emperors have collected enough wealth to make breeding impractical pets very lucrative indeed. To say nothing of the many other rich kingdoms that, given China's reaction, put Rome to absolute shame. China called Rome a cluster of small kingdoms the first time that they traded emissaries. And they didn't think they were worth much time. The point is, a big huge deal with regards to domestication is utility. Once you have one or more utilities figured out, then you need to think about the other stuff that comes along with domestication. The feeding and the containing and the breeding and whatnot. I think the idea behind feeding your target species mostly speaks for itself. If you're trying to domesticate unicorns, say, it's just not going to happen if all they eat is um, the light from the moon from fresh dewfall or the rainbows that pop up in the spray of waterfalls. You just can't transport those things to your domesticated herd. That's just not a thing you can do. More realistically, if you're trying to domesticate a large carnivore, but you're living in a situation where it's not like you can spare a few hundred pounds of meat every so often. That's a no-go as well. And when it comes to containment, well, this is why we don't really have any domesticated water animals, mammal or otherwise, and why our officially domesticated bird species aren't super famous for flying. If you can't hold on to whatever you're trying to domesticate, then it's not going to hang around to be domesticated. This is also why, I imagine, we've never really, really domesticated elephants or the moose. My sister has never been bitten by a moose, but they are frightfully big animals with antlers who have very strong opinions about where they belong. And that opinion is, wherever the heck they want to belong. I'm just saying, you're not going to find me arguing with a moose. Now, when it comes to the breeding of your target species, things get a little less overt, but it's all about the genetics, baby. Animals that are able to produce multiple babies per litter or have very short breeding cycles mean that you're able to have a better chance of actually finding traits that are desirable within the animal. And, of course, in order to pass those favorable traits on, you want to have favorite animals having babies with other favorite animals. Before we get into the what does this mean for dragons, let's look a little bit at some historical and current examples of domestication. Using, you guessed it, the dog. Now, initially, way back when, when wolves were just scavenging for scraps early humans left in their camps, wolves who were less scared of us and had a shorter what is called flight distance, got more food and were more likely to survive and pass on their genes. After a while of this, wolves and humans somehow figured out that working together means more food for everyone. Now, if this involves humans adopting litters of pups or what, I don't know. There were probably lots of methods involved over long periods of time. The pups that kept the wolf-like traits of being scared of new things when they're older and aggressiveness and independence probably left or had a harder time coexisting within human communities. Pups that were less likely to bite, more willing to be around humans, and more willing to listen were rewarded and became dogs eventually. These dogs who showed talents in certain things, guarding, hunting, herding, were bred with other dogs that showed the same talents, resulting in the varied types of dog we know today, vaguely. There was this huge boom in the 1800s about creating new breeds of dog, and there still are dog breeds being created today, along with some genetic controversies within the kennel clubs and things like that. So these dog breeds specialized in certain things. A few of those specializations go back centuries, or maybe even longer. Hunting dogs, sled or draft dogs, herding dogs, and guard dogs are all examples of these kinds of ancient occupations. More recently, we have even more breeds designed with a certain job in mind. A good example of this is the gun dog. Hunting dogs bred to help out hunters who use that modern weapon, the gun. Beloved breeds like Labrador Retrievers and Golden Retrievers didn't exist more than a few hundred years ago. And even now, people are using dogs for new purposes like bomb sniffing, cancer detection, and therapy. I'm sure breeds will emerge in the future for therapy purposes, cancer sniffing, or other tasks which might not even exist yet. So when we apply all these things to dragons, we really need to start by making a few few assumptions first. First assumption, these dragons aren't exactly the ones who taught humans to read. What I mean when I reference a legend I half remember that probably originated in China is that the dragons we're trying to domesticate aren't intelligent in a way comparable to humans. Many dragons in media are that smart. If you look at the dragon riders of Pern, or The Hobbit, or Dragonheart, they might not follow human society or morals, (coughs) smog, (coughs) but they're still smart like us. Dragons that smart aren't usually going to be willing to be domesticated or convinced to be bred like dogs. Even Anne McCaffrey's dragons from her Pern series originally started as wordless fire lizards, and Naomi Novak's Temrair dragons are less domesticated and instead tend towards, I'd say, consenting adults, though Novak has a huge range of different levels of, let's say, partnership her dragons and humans experience. The point is, smart dragons tend not to be interested in puny humans' ideas about matchmaking. However, if they're more the level of, say, potentially telepathic dolphins or parrots, like in Jane Yolen's Pit Dragon trilogy, then it's much easier to, mm, arrange things, shall we say. The intelligence level leads itself to the question of can you control the breeding and can you contain it? Size is another factor that lends itself to these two questions. How big are the dragons? Yolin's dragons are about elephant sized by the time humans have been breeding them for generations for things like size and strength. And, like I said, the dragons of Pern started out as maybe cat-sized fire lizards. Again, let me point out that we've never domesticated bears. You know, bears, which are traditionally smaller than dragons. A fire-breathing lizard even five feet long would be difficult to handle if it put its mind to it. A more reactive, instinctive, and less clever or tactical animal would be easier to manage, even if they are huge, such as the dragon scene in the Dragon Jouster series by Mercedes Lackey. However, the Jousters in Lackey's books can't really control who their dragons breed with, in actually a fairly spectacular way we see in the first book which means that actually selecting for specific, l- for specific desirable traits is out, which means domestication is right out for them. On the other hand, it's generally agreed that dragons have multiple babies when they do reproduce, usually through clutches of eggs, which is one of the aforementioned necessary traits for domestication. Their diet is also simple in concept and widely agreed upon. Meat. Though occasionally some dragons eat other things, most stories have them as basically obligate carnivores. It doesn't really take rocket science to figure out how to feed a dragon, conceptually speaking. On a practical level, sometimes it can be difficult to acquire enough meat for human-sized animals. If our hypothetical domesticated dragons are big enough for humans to ride on them, they need huge amounts of meat on a regular basis which can be a challenge to get both in a financial sense and in a production sense. Finally, in our analysis of dragon domestication, let's look at the theoretical use of dragons in occupations besides emotional companionship. The obvious option is one that is most used in media, some kind of martial use. Dragons, winged or not, are usually very big, very strong, very well-armed, and often well-armored add fire breathing and flying to that, and you have a being that's basically made to bring destruction down upon its enemies. So it's not a big leap to have dragons domesticated for the purposes of guarding something or helping in combat, but what would need to be addressed is the fact that dragons are generally considered to be independent beasts, and breeding a line of deadly lizards to be even more deadly without being able to control them would not be a great idea. Ideally, you'd need to have dragons that, like dogs, are willing to be trained to take orders from someone. Even if that was just one single person, which, hey, might be the reason for dragon riders in your world. Even though fighting is probably the most obvious idea for dragon domestication, there could be many other uses, especially if we get creative with size. Dragons, as carnivores, wouldn't be interested in eating crops, and so smaller cat-sized ones could be used to keep pests away from the grain, or work as guards for the crops. Dragons in cold climes could be life-saving sources of heat during winter, and in all places, they could be key aspects in forging metal. Uses for dragons could be as wide or wider than our uses for dogs today. Imagine, seeing-eye dragons, dragons who herd sheep, dragons who help in hunting. They could also be used for emotional companionship. But humans can use just about anything for emotional companionship, including plants. So... Being able to shape an animal's natural behavior so it becomes compatible with us is what makes for domestication, and humans are very flexible when it comes to what we'll take as companions, which is probably the reason that qualification was on the list in the first place. So now that we have domesticated dragons, the changes to overall society would eventually become apparent, and they would differ depending on what dragons got domesticated how. Dragons used mainly for heat and fire would probably mean society would be Build everything out of stone. Wooden buildings would be too much of a fire hazard to live in. We've seen this already in real-life cities like Galway, Ireland, which favored stone houses after suffering fires in order to prevent more fires, and they didn't even have to deal with dragons. A society that favors stone as a building material would tend to settle in or around quarries and would also greatly favor bodies of water as settlement places. Dragons used in agriculture could lead to societies with vast farms and large herds that are almost totally vegetarian with much of the meat going to dragons. A very similar thing could happen in societies that domesticated dragons for martial reasons. Big, fighting dragons would need a lot of meat, and it would take a lot of veg to feed all that meat. These examples are all stuff I've just pulled off the top of my head. It would take a little more digging to really suss out how dragons could change things. If you're even using dragons. It could be a totally different species you're thinking about domesticating. And in that case, go for it! Of course, as always, it is important to do your research. Today, I was helped with that by visiting the Why Animals Do The Thing blog, which has a lot of good information. Some of it on domestication, but most of it on the way animals act and why, as well as things humans get wrong in our assumptions. Why Animals Do The Thing can be found at whyanimalsdothething.com, as well as on Tumblr and Facebook. More information, inspiration, and ideas on worldbuilding can be found on this show's blog at whataboutworldbuilding.tumblr.com, as well as by email at whataboutworldbuilding at yahoo.com. Finally, there is WA Worldbuilding on Twitter, if that's where you like to hang out. Feel free to shoot me any questions or topic requests or anything at all. I'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling really generous, you could let me know what you think through an iTunes review. That would be great. Thank you for being patient with me. It's coming up to the end of semester, so things are getting a little rough schedule-wise. I'll try and keep this show going as regularly as possible, but I do have to face reality when dealing with the demands of grad school. Thanks again, and happy world-building.